Cradeline Network. Borag Thong Earthlets. My name is Conrad, alongside my friend Fox. This is the 298th episode of Space Spinner 2000. So close. A podcast where two Americans try to make sense of the UK's own galaxy's greatest comic, 2000 AD. One month of progs at a time. This episode, we're covering 2000 AD for September 1994, progs 904 to 907. This time, we got a whole new slate of thrills with Big Adventures for Big Dave, Robo Hunter, and ABC Warriors as Button Man. And as Button Man returns and we start the long-awaited Judge Dredd crossover event, Wilderlands. Hell yeah. That's going to be a good, that's going to be some good podcasting. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you were to read along with this, you find the comics we're covering today in Judge Dredd, the Complete Case Files 21, ABC Warriors, The Mech Files 2, Robo Hunter, The Droid Files 2, and the Button Man Collection, Get Harry X. Well, <laughs> that's a, the title of his sex tape. It's, yeah, listen, you know, give me a couple things, whatever. Uh, pretty good. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of uh, podcast events, Fox, how about you and me take a trip in deep into the depths of the Wilder Zone and get started with Thrill One, Judge Dredd. Uh, script about John Wagner, art about Carlos Escara and, and Trevor Harrison, lettering about Tom Frame. Wilderlands Part One, we're in the Wilder Zone. Where am I? When am I? In the Wilder Zone. Right. The Wilder Zone. Talk about Wilderlands, this dread mega epic. Eli Fox and Conrad, Team EFC, the Everton <laughs> Football Club, coming at you. Is I'm that a is that a I'm British right. joke? Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a football. Sorry, it's Eli, a I was speaking over you. I'm just glad that I'm number one. It's EFC. That's freaking. I mean, Ooh, that's right. That's, that's true. Well, you know, I remember there being some dissatisfaction with me calling us Team Feck last time <laughs> the whole oh, way through. Yeah, so I'm mixing it up. Don't remember that. That never happened. <laughs> so we once more find ourselves in the world of comics crossovers, you know, even more wild here in 1994 than they were in 1992 our, for our last one with Judgment Day. With 2000 AD and just magazine sort of in trouble, this was a chance to juice sales for both comics to get people to buy, you know, buy both of them instead of just one. Although... With the previous crossover, there was a lot of criticism, actually, of, you know, of just that, basically. Like, oh, like you can't follow the story unless you buy both of them. And I'm not made of pounds and pence or whatever. So <laughs> um, in theory, you should be able to understand the story, even if you're only reading the uh, the prog or the meg parts of the story. That's something to kind of keep an eye out for as we're reading. Oh, because they do like a recap or something. Or just, yeah, or like something we'll see a lot, especially in these early sections, or I, I guess in part one and two is you'll see sort of the, the same conversation from different angles, for instance, like in like the magazine sections are a lot more focused on Judge Castillo. Um, and so she'll sometimes, sometimes you'll see the same conversation she has with like Dread, say, 
from her perspective, but in, in the magazine or and in the progs, we'll see the same conversation from Dred's perspective. That's cool. I like that. Yeah, I think it's an interesting way of handling it for sure. Well, I I definitely think that it's you know it's taking into consideration the fact that most of your readership are children, as opposed to say I don't know people with a bunch of money to spend. I mean, at this point, I think they're getting more towards being sort of like teens and folks in their early 20s for the record. Like it's not the it's not the six to 12 year olds that it was in the day or actually more like it is those same six to 12 year olds as it was back in the day. But it's also like 17 years later. You know? Right. So sure. say, a lot of the topics don't seem to be of a childlike nature. They seem pretty mature. So I was. Yeah. I'm surprised I mean, to, to think that. Yeah, I, I mean, especially in the magazine, it's it's definitely focused more on the on the young adult reader, and I think the Prague is older crew than it was one at one point. Well, it is the '90s. We got to be got to be uh, pointing ourselves at the Utes, the oh, new Utes. '90s. That's what I say. So last time I asked y'all um, about co- comics crossovers you liked back in the world, back in the uh, in the Judgment Zone. This time, I want to know about your best extreme travel story. You ever been in a hairy plane flight or something? Let me know. Eli, uh, any uh, extreme travel tales? Oh, I was trying to figure out a way to make a joke about being on a flight with a guy named Harry, but. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you were going to the high rock. Right, exactly. Um, uh, I do remember, um, I, I don't get out of my house a lot by choice. I, I like being in my house, but um, I do go to gigs sometimes. The only thing that comes to mind is, um, uh, um, a uh, time I went uh, to a different state to do caricatures. I was driving down this long freeway. I got uh, pulled over by a cop for speeding, mostly because you ever been on an open road and there's just a lot of it, and yeah, you're like, and there's no one's on it, so you're just like, I should just exceed the speed limit real quick. Yeah, you drive fast because it's awesome. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, but anyway, the cop pulled over, uh, pulled me over. Um, in this particular case, I was driving a car that. Um, it didn't have its insurance. I had the insurance, didn't have documentation of it. Um, it was in someone else's name because I had just recently got it from them and paperwork hadn't come in yet. The speedometer. Holy fuck. Because it was a, 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 well, it just, none of its gauges work. Like, um, <laughs> I can't tell how much gas is in it until the uh, check, until the gas light comes on. And then I'm like, oh, okay, we're out of gas now. I better fill it up. Um, Are you fear and loathing in Las Vegas, the book? <laughs> uh, I'm not. Um, but it was, uh, but yeah, I was pretty sure. Uh, just me being uh, African American, oh. cops well. So I was like, "Oh no, I'm gonna die. This is it." Uh, uh, I mean, yeah. honestly, yeah. <laughs> I, I, told I mean, all, America, baby. I, I told the guy all the stuff, and he was like, "Hey, you know what? Just be careful. There's coyotes on this road. Um, coyotes, <laughs> like they, like they'd attack your speeding vehicle." No, he was like, "Just um, people freak out. The coyotes come out, and then you, you, you freak out, and then now you, you're dead. Coyotes dead. Like, God yeah. damn it! I was hoping for like, uh, like, uh, uh, what is it? Like, uh, evil, evil coyotes and <laughs> race cars, like trying to get you. Cars, right? No, not this time. That's that's another story. Um, that's but, awesome." And he gave me just gave me some tips. He's like, "Hey, take a photograph of your insurance. That way, you can just show it to people, and it's all fine." And he just let me off with a warning. It just I, it was, I thought it was very sweet. Um, but not a I, shit cop in right. the middle of nowhere. I think it was. I always felt like it was one of those things where it's a small neighborhood, so he just doesn't care about like my like oh some some guys visiting here. Like giving him a ticket isn't like it's fine. He, I'm never going to see this person again. 
But I feel like if he was like, oh, you're old man, Jane, you know, I know you. Hey, you whippersnapper. Like he would have been a little bit more like uh, judgmental. But he was like, mm-hmm. oh, the guy who just isn't, isn't used to this area who's never going to come back. Yeah. Hey, watch out. Drive better. All right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's weirdly enough, the purpose of cops. Right. Like, hey, listen, man, like just drive a little better as opposed to anything else. Right. Sometimes cops are robots, and right. I, those are the law. The I, I'll be honest, RoboCop is literally the worst kind of cop. Right. Yeah, that's what Dread thinks too. Fox, any? Uh, oh, sorry. Go, go ahead, Eli. Yeah, so, yeah. It's a uh, mechanismo. I think was that you, you exactly. I was trying to do some extra work, getting that extra credit. <laughs> yeah, Fox. Any uh, big travel stories in your past? Uh, most of my weirder ones have okay. been. Uh, it, uh, let's well, we're we'll not worry about the cross state line stuff, but we'll worry about like the UAE, right? So while I was working for a particular company that was on a particular island, mm. uh, one of the main places we had to fly through was the United Arab Emirates. Um, and in order to hit a very particular flight, I had to stay in a hotel in the airport, which happily my company paid for. Um, and that hotel, they had people come at very particular hours to knock on your door. Oh, excuse me, sir. It's time for prayer, which was, you know, Hey, listen, man, I'm in a Muslim country. And I said, uh, Hey, what do you mean? And they're like, Oh, well, uh, listen, there's a prayer rug right over here. Showed me everything I had to do. And, uh, it was the first time I've, uh, ever prayed towards Mecca in my life. Um, pretty dope. I mean, not under the watchful eye of anybody. He just set it all up for me. And he was like, yeah, just in case you want to. And I'm like, well, you know, when in a police state, definitely pray towards Mecca. Right. I get it. Uh, Not a good time to make waves. Listen, I like I definitely didn't search porn in that in that uh, hotel room where I was definitely being surveilled. So wouldn't want that. Although. They wouldn't. <laughs> oh, right, right. It was a. It was an interesting. It was an interesting place. Uh, like I, I've never actually been outside, like of the airport. Uh, when you when I landed at, um, I want to say it was around ten at night. It was around forty degrees Celsius, which is around like Jesus Christ, eighty or ninety or a hundred degrees. Yeah, that's like hundred degrees. Yeah, that's like hundred degrees. So it was very hot at night. <laughs> And 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 here I am wearing like, you know, clothes and everyone else is like, yeah, we're just in like a robe because it's fucking hot. All right. Yeah. When in Rome, take your clothes I, off. Or it's it's one of the things that I really kind of like, like clocked on is that if I ever have to kind of connect through the Emirates ever again in my life, which I think will be never. Um, I don't I I like dress for comfort. It's a very uh, humid place. <laughs> hey, duly noted. I uh, I tried to pray pray towards Mecca. That was a that was an interesting interesting attempt. Yeah, they actually have a how to on the on the uh, on the TV. It's like here's yeah. how you do it. If you I want to do it, I want to know if you like became more spiritual. If you like Mecca answered back. I I definitely didn't like experience Muhammad being like, bro, great one. Like you're in now. <laughs> 
<laughs> I I definitely was like, hey, I'm going to try this out in a country uh, that is a place that I've been. <laughs> and for being open minded and just kind of, uh, you know, like like what's going to happen to me? Like yeah. as somebody who doesn't who doesn't have a chosen deity yet, you know, I'm not a cleric. Uh, you know Get those magic powers, buddy. Pick some. Domains. Well, that's the thing. Is like, hey, listen, it'd be very easy for me to choose a god if I got magic powers. It's no brainer. Uh, talking about no right. no atheists in D and D world. You know? Right. That's well, what I'm saying. Like, give me magic powers. That's the trick, though, because you get magic powers, and then you're a part of some sort of weird contract, and then the powers are used for like you got to do a bunch I, of stuff. That's what, so see, that's the thing. Like you're talking about a sorcerer, right? Like a sorcerer is like, hey, I have an eight, I have an eight powers granted to me by like a book. Okay. Or okay, I don't wanna, whatever. All we're I'm getting saying, too deep into D&D talk here. We got to get going. <laughs> All right. Wait, what are we talking about? The Wilderlands? That's right. That's right. My my travel story is that one time I was in a plane that um it was we had a bunch of crosswinds so they had to do like three or four attempted landings before oh my god we actually landed that's too uh, with like uh, you know going it. down going back up then like a big like you know having to turn the plane around to try to land again so like a big hundred and eighty like, degree turn like you guys are like trying that. to land like you were yeah. physically feeling the landing happening and then they were like nah biffed it. Exactly, and so, I hate yeah. that. It's the it's the first time I actually saw so I um someone actually used a uh I saw someone use a, a barf bag for you know for barfing. Nice. Did you? I hate this. I hate this so become much. More spiritual in that. I, feel like <laughs> I mean, yeah, but it was Eli, one of those. I love it. One of those. One of those honestly far too frequent moments in the life of Conrad, where in the moment. I'm very spiritual, willing to make a lot of promises to God. But in the, af- in the aftermath, I'm less willing to follow through on them. I'm a, I'm a bad friend to God. You know, that's sort of how it goes, I'm afraid. <laughs> Eli, I love the follow through. I love this bit. That's right. Like, please, I'll go to church every day. I promise. <laughs> Get all done. Right. All right, that was fine. I don't right. think we need to, I think we all know that <laughs> right. I was in a moment and we could just Speaking carry of on. Bad plane flights. Exactly. Exactly. Here we go. Wilderlands at last. So we, we're on the planet Hestia, and this is backstory that they covered pretty well in the magazine, but not that well in the prog. So I'm just gonna drop it on you here, Fox, if that's all right with you. We're on the planet Hestia. It's the 10th planet, or I guess the ninth planet now, because they also didn't foresee pluto being delisted um <laughs> it was it's on notice yeah it's got an orbit perpendicular to earth's and was discovered in the year two in the distant future of 2009 Ooh. it's about halfway between earth and venus in its orbit and has a breathable atmosphere and fire-based wildlife including um a race of intelligent humanoids called the Nomen. so it's nibiru yeah, it's very much in that sort of Nibiru Planet X sort of situation. So it's a racist planet. No, because I feel like I feel like those connotations of the tenth planet hadn't like 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 there's no Q in 1994 when this stuff's being written. You know? No, but there is like Chariot of the Gods. Oh yeah. Oh sure. But I mean, I mean the that, that ancient alien stuff's in the in the magazines going on in uh, in on Mars too, where the that's the face true. Of, the face of Mars is an actual face and was full of ancient alien um, t- 
technologies and stuff. Yeah, Egyptians couldn't have done this all by themselves. It had to have definitely been somebody else. Obviously. Sorry, you you were saying something, Eli? No, I was just saying, um, no, they're not racist. We're the... We're the racists. That's that's supposed to be the message. Um, of course. <laughs> so, anyway, um, j- meanwhile, Judge Dredd has been arrested and is on and is being escorted to Titan by Chief Judge Magruder for interfering with the Mechanismo Robot Judge program thing. Um, yeah, Magruder's taking him, you know, there along with her aide Castillo, who's assisting her. They stopped by Hestia to try to sell robo judges to the locals, but no dice. Um, and last and uh, previously in the magazine, one of the mechanismos didn't try to help Magruder like during an assault, like when some some shark, some flying shark, sand shark things attacked him. And so now she's a little paranoid about the bots as well. This is all stuff sort of from the magazine. Um, so, like I said, this is a crossover between the magazines. And the progs, which starts in prog 904, goes to 905, then we go to the magazine, then back to the progs. So it's sort of two progish episodes, then one mag episode, and so forth like that. Dude, so I imagine John Wagner's kind of running the whole show. Yeah, he's writing through. this whole thing. Uh, is it is it all Carlos, or is it... Uh, no, uh, 2000 AD side is mostly Carlos, and mm-hmm. is mostly Carlos Escara. And I believe the magazine's all uh, Trevor Harrison's. A relatively new guy, but I think he's nice. some good dread work here. Yeah, I really like the art. He's got some good monster stuff going. Like <laughs> so, starting in Prog 904, Wagner, Scarra, and Frame, a oh, firestorm rains down as the Justice 4 spaceship prepares to take off. We learned that, um, as well as various passengers and Dredd and Magruder Castillo, they're also taking a, a native Hestian girl named Phoenix on the ship with them. We met Phoenix in the as well. The ship flies off over the unexplored territory of the Wilderlands, doing some photo reconnaissance before the ship hits the atmosphere. Um, and there's sort of folks looking out the windows, checking out natural geyser systems and giant dragons and stuff like that. I mean, I would, too. You know, yeah. I'd be ogling all them dragon birds. Cool alien scenery and none of the heavy psychedelic stuff like in Firekind, but or at least not yet. Missed opportunity. Uh, well, it's, it, it's coming. <laughs> Magruder, oh, sorry, Eli? No, I just laughed. Yeah. Um, Magruder calls Castillo because she wants to talk to Dredd now. Castillo gets Dredd from his cell and they head over, passing some new prisoners. There's a mutant labor gang that they're taken back to Earth to be jailed. In her cabin, Magruder is ordering the robots um, checked for faults. And when Dredd arrives... Magruder offers him a pardon if he agrees to swear loyalty to her, but Dredd's not very impressed by all this. He says he won't wear that badge until, or he, he won't wear the badge again until Magruder is out of office. I mean, pretty fair, given the 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 robot boys yeah. that she keeps making. Doesn't like those robots. Right. The ship flies over a lava flow as it prepares to enter orbit, when suddenly a mysterious gun appears and kills the ship's pilot. Guns do <laughs> i i like i like the idea of like there potentially just being a a pilot gun somewhere like we're hanging out in the back you know it's the future yeah it's like the sword of damocles but it's a gun pointed at at a ship pilot oh my god Prog 904, the co-pilot is shot as well, sending the Justice 4 crashing down it lands in the lava flow with a spladoomph 
and the ship submerges, but then pops back up like a cork, for now at least. But in the crash, Magruder falls and lands right on her neck, which is bad times. The ship floats in the lava, but there's a hole in the bottom and lava spray. Yeah, and lava starts spraying inside the ship. Dread springs into action, grabbing Magruder and telling Castillo to see to the passengers. He carries the chief to an escape port using a fire axe to open the door when the handle's red hot to the touch. One of the things I'll say about like this whole like because we're we're almost we're going through almost like four to six pages at this point is that there's very minimal amounts of like uh, text right yeah no this is very it's like, all just yeah. action yeah they're really trying to get across like that this is a real crisis situation and so dread sort of moving almost by by instinct mm-hmm. right um judge kinsley tries to stop dread but there's no time dread magruder and kinsey all escape but dread goes back in to get more survivors this takes us into the magazine with Trevor Harrison on art. Um, as we're seeing in the mag, also these sections are all narrated by Castillo's journal. And we flash back slightly as the ship enters a dive into the lava. Uh, yeah, I can kind of see what you mean. It's where it's, yeah, it, it's it, there's a little bit of narration to kind of let you know what's going on. Yeah. In previous installments, when we were sort of going around Hestia, uh, Castillo's journal was also sort of a framing device. And you can kind of see how, again, how these timelines sort of overlap, you know, so we're sort of flashing back a little bit to before the crash, before the start of the crash here in the Meg. Right. Yeah. So the ship goes into the lava. People people are tossed around the ship as we see Dredd telling Castillo to see to the passengers from her perspective. This is one of those crossover points. She gets a hysterical Judge Moynihan to get it together and rallies the civilians to evacuate the ship including um, lifting debris off the leg of a Dr. Rendell from Britsit. We'll see later. The pass- with, with the passengers out, Dredd asks her to undo his cuffs. She does, and both she and Dredd realize that there's more prisoners aboard the ship. Dredd goes to get them as a woman falls off the gangplank and can't hold on So she, to people trying to save her, so she goes plunging into the lava below. I really like that uh, sequence because you see she has a... Because she did not, she burst into flames on the way to the lava, which mm. you know, is how it should work. Because the lava is so hot, <laughs> and it, like just the air above it will burn you. So right. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> totally cool. Um, sorry. Uh, okay. A med tech is checking on Magruder. She's in a bad skull fracture, and there's no way for them to get medical attention. They're two thousand k's out from civilization. And there's no ship that could reach them, even if they knew where they were. This is something we also learned about Hestia, just that they've sort of got one central colony, but they don't really have a lot of resources to go deeper into the frontier, sort of around that one. They're trapped in the Wilderlands! This takes us back into the progs with Ascara, as we see Dredd going through the ship, sending a surviving judge to safety. He surveys a dead engine engine room and the Mechanismo control room where Dredd notes that both the engineers there had their necks broken. But both these mm. places are now filling up with lava. Yeah, yeah, think about it. Um, it and also, it's the third time in as many comics that someone says the, the, uh, the, there must be a hole in the hull of the ship. They, they're hitting that note hard in this, in this section. It's Leviathan as hell. Yeah, he meets with Castillo and re-overlaps in the magazine, then goes to help the prisoners. Um, he manually opens the cages and beats one of them up for um, to get the rest under control. 
They all run and dread leaps, just barely getting off the Justice 4 in time as it sinks into the lava. I love that he uses an axe into, like, molten cliff in order to pull himself up. Yeah, pres- <laughs> like, presumably. Pretty, pretty yeah, rad. Because of the lava, the 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 cliff's kind of gummy or something. It's a, it's, bit, it's a bit more malleable. I'll yeah, bite. Yeah. It's, like, it's, it's like a big hunk of fudge or something like that, you know? <laughs> Weird. All right. <laughs> a the hunk, su- a hunk of burning fudge. Finally. The survivors survey the scene and wonder what they'll do now. O'Hare, the medic, uh, confirms this dire strait that Judge Magruder's in, as Dredd confirms that no distress signal was sent when the ship went down. They're on their own. The judges wondered what what happened with all this stuff, and um, while and wh- while one of them starts getting spooky about the curse of the planet, Dread takes charge oh and starts assigning some roles. Like, let's start rationing food, and medical supplies, and you know, you're the intelligence officer, that kind of stuff. But Judge Hine, the, oh, go ahead. the deluge of text ensues, and someone decides that they're going to step to Judge Dread yeah. and gets fucking clocked. Yeah, Judge Hine pulls rank because, hey, I'm senior judge here and you're just a prisoner, Dredd. But Dredd kind of puts him on the spot like, well, what do you want to do then? And um, Hine is indecisive. So Dredd punches him in the face and takes his gun. Yeah, that's what you learn. That's the lesson right there. Yeah. All these judges are just button pushers, rejects, too weak for the streets. That's why they're, you know, doing diplomatic missions on a spaceship. (laughs) Dredd's the only one capable of leading in this situation. And it seems like the judges actually mostly agree with this. Like we, they, they know they're, they, they, they know they, they suck, but they're also bound by the law. They can't like let dread be in charge extra judicially. Um, and the judges un- a bunch of judges into yeah. charge. Pow. He gets halfway there. And luckily Magruder comes out of her coma just long enough to put dread in charge as well. Cause she knows that like, we got to get past the stumbling block. They've got to get out of the lava pit, but O'Hare warns that moving Magruder might kill her. But Dredd can't make exceptions, so on his head be it, he takes responsibilities. With him back in charge, Castillo gives him his gives Dredd his badge back. It's time to be a judge again. And the party heads out um, with uh, the convicts carrying Magruder on a stretcher. As we see Dredd deactivating the palm sensor on Hines' gun so he can use it as well. He makes Castillo intelligence officer and worries to her that the ship must have been taken out by sabotage and the killer that, you know, took the ship out might still be among them. Sabotage! All right. (laughs) So back in the magazine, we're with Harrison again, and um, the Motley crew makes their way through the wilderness wilderness as we overlap with with Dredd's sabotage concerns. Only the lava flow, only the lava flow being shallow kept them alive. Dredd doesn't know why anyone would kill themselves for, you know, to like necessarily if you kill, if you, the, the way that if, if this was like an assassination attempt on Magruder, it would kill you as well. And Dredd isn't sure who would do that. Um, and we see sort of the crew stopping to take a break because they're wimps, not like cool right. judges, basically. <laughs> Magruder's failing and, um, only those three freed convicts are happy to um, be stuck here in the wilderness. Even the judges are grumbling when suddenly a little a scream rings out. It's a little girl named Molina, and she's getting grabbed by tentacles. Oh, no. Oh, God, gross. 
a, a preteen? Come on, guys. They pull her underground through a hidden trap door into a tunnel system. Dreads hot in her heels, but arrives to find the lair of the creature that's full of bones and some kind of monster. This big, like, fleshy spider crab with tentacles biting into the girl's back. And honestly, it's pretty terrifying. I mean, turns out she's or it is into Vore. Mm, yeah, literally. Dread tries to shoot the creature, but it shoots a corrosive spray at him instead. Tries to eat him instead. <laughs> Suddenly, Castillo arrives and distracts it. Dread grabs a jagged tooth off the ground and kills the monster with it. He gets medical attention. They tell him the acid burns will heal, but the girl won't. She's dead. Aww. Ah, her father. It's like a white window. No. Uh, spiders dissolve our insides. <laughs> Oh, 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 ew, ew, ew. Exactly. Um, yeah, we learned that the spider, the uh, the or that this creature dissolved her from the inside out, turning her to jelly. O'Hare tends to dread as he chides the other judges for like not helping him, and they're all jerks I about mean, it. Honest to God, it's their job. <laughs> they're like, Oh, dread, I thought you were in charge of this stuff, big survival dude. You know, you seem to have it all in hand. You know, it it's true. When I think of uh, this is the guy in charge, I think this is the person who is going to be doing the actions and not sitting back and and observing the actions. You're right. It, there's one thing I hate more than judges than than just regular judges. It's lazy judges. Mm, preach. Yeah. I will say I really enjoyed the art from this section yeah. because I think this is from the magazine. Yeah, yeah. This, this is a uh, 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 Trevor Harrison here. Yeah. So Molly. Molly Witters is dead. How many of the rest of the crew will join her? We'll find out next time on Wilderlands. Sum up this first section for six um, installments of Wilderlands here. What do y'all think? So far, so good. I'm really liking it. Um, I like the setup that they have. Um, Hey, let's go to an isolated planet. Um, Make it so that Judge Dredd is uh commit conduct a mutiny and now he's in charge and now everyone else is against him but need him to live it creates an interesting tension pretty quick that's very easy to understand um so yeah i could see them doing some fun stuff um and uh, you know naturally they put a mystery in there too oh who's this person killing is it is it the curse is it mechanismo is it dread evil plan he does evil stuff mm, if he thinks it's secondary the right force the right. Sino sit, something like that. Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah, and yeah, as, as uh, uh, Fox said, the uh, arts uh, banger. So it's freaking great. Uh, yeah, I, I firmly agree. I like that it splits up, at least if, as we're kind of reading through it mm-hmm. continually, right? Like everyone and everyone should, you know, take a knee for Carlos. But uh, like, I, I love the new uh, and Conrad. Uh, can you give me the name of the yeah yeah the tr- yeah again? Trevor Harrison Trevor Harrison kind of like it bringing it into the modern era right like I I think of of Carlos as a very particular time and era within the uh, within the the genre let's say mm-hmm. um, but not one that necessarily has like the crisp new look that I'm used to from like the nineties when I got into mm-hmm. comic books, right. Which this has, and you know, your, your really thick uh, kind of um, black lines, 
you know, again, it's it's your it's your uh, comic book look, right? Like everything is kind of outlined in in a nice black ink. You've got your nice dark shadows, but your characters are also a lot more detailed, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I I find it to be so much like I love going back and forth basically because it's kind of like the the original, the feel, the look, and now like the new and the you know again a woman dropping into lava and before she gets into lava as you say Eli burning to a crisp that that entire page Mm. like is split into four panels but those four panels are all from a a a fixed point right like and and it's diagonaled out and it feels dynamic while at the same time showing that kind of progression of her just setting on fire and dying right there's so much in this that i think is is worth looking at even though i think like ultimately it's just gonna turn into judge dread fighting some robots yeah. well that's what it always turns into but yeah I, <laughs> I, I totally agree with that um yeah it has um the legibility and um readability of it isn't compromised which i think is um that's the thing you got to maintain that's you know i'm all for amazing art but i also am like if i can't understand what the heck's going on then you lose a lot there as well. But this one's kind of towing that line very well. Uh, yeah, exactly. I, I just, it, it's so interesting, at least for, for me, because I've talked about it a little bit with, with, with Conrad, but like looking at, like, let's say Carlos Escara, he's very used to um, squares and rectangles as here is how we show something. Mm-hmm. Whereas we're seeing with, with this fellow Trevor, it's like it's a little bit more dynamic. There, you know, you'll do a panel, you'll do a full page, and then some pop-out panels on top of that. Like it, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a bit more modern, and I, and I like that a lot more because it makes it feel a lot more kinetic, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Cool. Yeah, and I think it's an. Inter- I think it's we're telling an interesting story just in this mega epic. I think so much of our pre our recent, I guess pretty much all the mega epics or. Like there's been this sort of escalating in they've been escalating in terms of size and scale, you know. I mean, the last one, of course, global zombie apocalypse, but other mecha epics have been stuff like you know, the fate of the city in the far, you know, time traveling to the far future, or um, or like you know the uh, Soviet invasion in the apocalypse war or something like that. I think it's interesting having this story, which where it's much smaller, right, and much more, you know, it's a it's a road trip and a survival story very different from um you know and much in a much smaller story even if it does involve dread and and the chief judge and stuff you know like the there's less stakes sort of but still an interesting tale it's a good canon you know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah yeah there's sort of yeah lost in the wilderness like who will survive that kind of stuff yeah you know you want to you want to save on budget so you're just in like the california yeah Island. yeah we're just walking through griff griffith park a bunch of times stuff like that Put a put a gel on the screen. All right, fantastic. Well, we'll be continuing on next episode with more of the Wilder Zone. Thanks for sticking out with us, um, Team EFC. Let's continue on in our quest. See you then in the Wilder Zone. Thrill to Big Dave. Ooh, and weirdly <laughs> topical. Yeah. Yeah, script robot Grant Morrison and Martin Miller, art robot Steve Parkhouse, letting robot Annie Parkhouse. Yeah, Big Dave's back. Weirdly topical as we're recording this the day after England got yeah. kicked, got a 
lost in a round of 16 in the Add World over Cup. our hearts for our boys in blue. Poor guys. Uh, I think in white or red? Oh, you know what I mean. Union Jack colors, whatever. Yeah. Lost to the French. That's how it goes. Agent Court, more like Agent Cant Fox. Oh, man. <laughs> it was a really close game. Yeah, I don't know. Hopefully all the... Uh, the emotion will have subsided by the time this episode comes out. Yeah, I know. It's been uh, somber, foggy, and icy ever since that day. Shivering as we speak. Yeah. So, D- Big Dave, he's back, but he's having a bad day. He can't even get cheered up by beating up some dude at the pub. It's because England didn't even qualify for the 1994 World Cup. Whoa. And now the Germans are on TV gloating about it national socialistically. Yeah, really... Uh... Really in full regalia. <laughs> they got that one helmet. It's bad times for sure. No problem. Lost forever. Okay, never mind. Um, Dave and his buddies head out, and they bump into his girlfriend from the last story, Cheryl Ann, who's pushing the pram with her and Dave's kid in it, though Dave, of course, denies the paternity. Uh. She wants money from him because the council only gave them a six-bedroom flat and half a million quid. Aww. These lazy single mothers, Fox, etc. I mean, it sounds pretty great, to be honest. Indeed. Feeling his beer, Dave pukes right into that baby carriage. That was pretty funny. <laughs> Puking on that kid. The lads roll on, arriving at the zoo, where a priest is loading some special needs kids onto a bus, having finished complaining that the seal pit isn't wheelchair friendly. Which, you know, I mean, if you're going to have a seal pit... I mean, let the let everyone in to see them seals. Yeah, I want to see them seals. Yeah, exactly. It's in the name. Seals. Yeah. Oh. Worse. Oh, 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 oh. Worse. It's not how it's spelled either. <laughs> <laughs> um, the priest is nice with this young kid named Donald, and then Dave rolls up, bottles the priest, and throws him right into the lion pit where he's promptly eaten. Dave, his buddy. His buddies and all the kids pile onto the bus they and get ride him, out. Get them drunk, I guess. They're just having a good time, you know, doing their chants and stuff like that. I mean, they all have beer cans. That's true, actually. Yeah. <laughs> the cops the cops give chase. The bus eventually driving off the side of a pier and into the sea. Next stop, America and the World Cup. Yeah, it's like the Inspector Gadget. <laughs> totally. Through the water. Uh, <laughs> Meanwhile, at Strange Ways Prison, Dave's dad, fo- named Fox, yeah, gets let out. Pretty rad. He's a cool dude, and he's going to beat the shit out of Dave pretty hard. Yeah. We last saw him in the 1994 yearbook in the Big Dave story there. And speaking of which, he's being picked up by Dave's old school rival, Pansy the Swat, looking for revenge. It's a real weird dude, this guy. Mm-hmm. I should say SWAT, S-W-O-T, is like the British version of like a nerd or like oh, really? something that like uh, is like, you know, smart in school and goes for grades and stuff like that, you know. Oh, what a horrible practice. Nerd, parentheses, derogatory, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so This kid also, maybe because his name was Pansy and so forth, has some implied gay things as well. Oh, God. Wow, Big Dave, really, yeah. Uh... Making some big strides here. They're really out of their element right now. <laughs> Absolutely. So 
on a Florida beach. There's something in the water. A bunch of lifeguards run out to help, but it's not a shark. It's Manchester's hardest man and his chums arriving on the shores of the U.S. for World Cup justice. Yeah, pretty good. Glad they drove the whole way. That's, uh, That's pretty far. Yeah, across the bottom of the sea, they lost the cops somewhere in the deep to a giant squid attack as Dave and Donald admired the bikini-clad ladies. As you do. Yeah. I mean, I I hope they're coming in from Florida, though, because otherwise, I mean, that's some cold water. Seems like it. Yeah, I I believe it is just because of what we have next, which is um, they follow. A bunch of street toughs, Latino street toughs. They follow a sign offering free booze to English tourists as some no-good druggy thugs on massive 90s brick cell phones coordinate an attack because they love drugs, Fox. They love them. That's And they love uh, having Uzis and stuff, man. They're really, Absolutely. really taking the caricature pretty far here. Yeah, and this is sort of playing off, I, I like at least one and possibly a series of attacks on British tourists in the, in Florida in the mid nineties, which I remember being in the news at the time, I guess really? it seemed like it was being reported a fair amount and was just sort of like, it seemed like there were at least set, like, if not several cases, at least several times it was publicized of like specifically British tourists in Florida being <laughs> like killed or attacked or something like that. I mean, you know, they did fuck up a lot of the, uh, the island nations. Yeah. You know, well, I mean, listen, I feel like Florida is more Spanish. If you're going for colonialism. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Still very fair. Anyway, um, I'm just saying that that's sort of that, that's some, some of the background for this one. And but this leads to a series of panels that I've always loved, which is where a criminal says Brits are dumb. No other race would fall for their cocaine crazed plan. I Whoa. figure you guys are a nation of poofs. Well. And then. Big Dave steps out with the Union Jack paper bag on his head, like, you what? And the guy just says, oh, my God, he's terrified. He's and Big Dave. That makes me chuckle. Like, it's just the the seriousness of, like, an almost lower case, like, oh, my God, when he says that, he's so scared. <laughs> Seeing that it's Big Dave, the crooks pretend to be wilting Nancy's meaning no harm, but that means Dave has to bottle him on general principles because of the homophobia. Yeah. Yeah. Brits are world-class hooligans, of course, and the lead th- as the lead thug begs for his life, bowing before the Union Jack. He offers to fix the World Cup so England wins using the power of voodoo. What the, it's just what the fuck. Dave accepts and 2000 AD salutes him. One million readers cheering like nutters. Reader He's, figure not verified. Yeah. Meanwhile, Pansy's putting Fox through his paces, like just punching out an attack dog. I just really. And then insinuating that he's going to eat it for teeth. Absolutely. Yeah. Pansy is um, is alight with desire as Fox prepares to eat the dog for tea. And Pansy hires him for a mission to kill Big Dave. I would do one of those things, but not the other. And I'll let the, the <laughs> listeners decide which. You'd eat a dog for dinner? No. Oh, you'd kill Big Dave. Meanwhile, Nelson Mandela is in a graveyard playing a voodoo drum, which he uses to raise the cap of the 1966 uh, World Cup winning England team, Bobby Moore from the dead in full football kit. So, I mean, he would be buried in England, though, right? 
I mean, but Nelson Mandela would be in South Africa. <laughs> this is true. All of these things, maybe they're, well, I don't know. Not going to try and put thinking in behind Big Dave. I, this is, I, I really remember reading this story the first time and being transfixed by the ridiculousness of this moment. I'm yeah. just like, what? <laughs> yeah, what? It's, it's very, and like voodoo. Why Mandela? <laughs> of all people. Right? Of all people to do your voodoo ceremony. And it, also, weirdly, they'll say that it's Mandela, but they ha- uh, changed Bobby Moore's name to Nobby Moore here. Yeah. Uh, who was the captain of the English football team and died in early 1993. On Wikipedia, it says the BBC counted him as one of the 100 greatest Britons. Whoa. But... Um, they only actually number them from one to ten, so he's just sort of in the mass of the uh, of of ten of of eleven to a hundred in there, you know. Okay. Anyway, thanks, Nelson Mandela, for your voodoo skills. <laughs> Apparently, it's, I mean, listen, I don't remember Nelson Mandela having voodoo abilities, but that's what everybody else is telling me. So I guess that's the way it is. Yeah, no, I figured his greatest accomplishment was, you know. Kicking the shit out of apartheid. Well, see, yeah, yeah, I'm saying that's not how I remember it because what you call <laughs> I'm trying to make a trying to make a Mandela effect joke here. Oh <laughs> yeah, Berenstein Bears, Berenstein Bears kind of thing. Stain, yeah. Stain, Who yeah. knows? Could be anything. Anyway, it's the World Cup final, and it should be Italy versus Brazil, but an anti-Semitic third team has arrived. Uh. Jimmy Hill's ch- giant chin can't believe it as the Germans have gone full Nazi, holding him at gunpoint forcing the three tenors to sing Deutschland Uber Alice, flying a big iron cross blimp over the stadium. Also shooting a referee. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, definitely about to get to it. Yeah, um, the beautiful game has become the game of shame as heavily muscled Germans are running roughshod over the pitch with pistols gunning down refs and players as they go there. Their last boy scouting all over the place, Fox. And scoring at will. Pretty, and pretty rough, especially he, when you get like the the silhouette of, of Hitler just yeah. having a beer watching his tube television. A shadowy Hitler cheers them on somewhere in South America. I do. So that I do like the wink and a nod that he's in South America. <laughs> yeah. And he's apparently still smarting at all the positive press that Oscar Schindler's gotten recently. Ooh, I shake my fist. That movie came out in 93, so fairly topical. Meanwhile, uh, suddenly Big Dave and the crew roll out onto the pitch, chanting England as he and his hooligan mates prepare to fight back, kicking faces and scoring goals. But is it enough? It is when zombie Nobby Moore arrives on the field. <laughs> Hitler's apoplectic as Nobby takes the ball and scores despite getting machine gunned by Nazi stormtroopers. Yeah, it doesn't work. He's a zombie. You know, gotta go right head. through him. Yeah. And I don't even know if that works for voodoo zombies. That's more for like those uh, it's like true. comet or chemical zombies or something. <laughs> Bioweapons. There's no, there's no pseudoscience keeping him alive. It's all magic. Bioweapons or in the rare case, uh, Las Plagas, which is a parasite that lives inside of your body and grows. And then when you shoot off their head, a big old gross uh, insect kind of comes out. Mm, and you got to escort the president's daughter or something. Yeah, like that's that. pretty good. You tell her to hide in garbage cans while you shoot a bunch of Spanish people. <laughs> and you get put into every console ever from GameCube onwards. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> President Evil 4 jokes. It's the way to go. Yeah, man. Quick time events with a knife. Finally. <laughs> um. So 
uh, more skulls, a bunch of golds as Jimmy Hill gets rifle butted in the head for getting too into it. The Brits have scored six goals in the fourth in the first half, and the nations are tied up. That's so many goals. So many goals. But at halftime, the ground starts to quake, and a massive hand bursts bursts forth, reclaiming the soul of Nobby Moore. He's been ghosted. Oh no! Oh, you <laughs> wait. No, ghosting is when um, you inhabit. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg, Goldberg and do some sexy, uh, some sexy clay throwing. It's that also. <laughs> yeah, that too. But I'm specifically saying it's ghosting because um, what's his? Because Jimmy Hill specifically refers to this as being like what happens in the movie Ghost <laughs> in, in the text of the comic. <laughs> I'm going with it, you know. Mandela's voodoo sorcery wasn't quite enough, and now things look bad. And even worse, when Fox shows up, he's here to kill Dave and all. I'm going to kill you, Dave. (laughs) Bloody hell, it's our dad. Yeah. It's our dad. (laughs) Fox has Dave dead to rights. He's going to kill him and and get that fiver from Pansy. Appeals to help England win the World Cup. Do nothing as Dave gets bottled. The humiliation of the brute turns Pansy on. Yeah, in a really specific way. Absolutely. He grabs a TV camera and starts filming the fight, but gets a bit too horny about all the violence and makes the Dave <laughs> the Daves turn on him. They just kick him in the face and smash the camera. As we see that the Germans have used this break in the in the the football action to score to use a tank to score the winning goal yeah don't be a creeper get consent before you start taping yeah come on seriously if i see you on the bus and you're doing that i'm gonna yell at you if i fucking hit your phone out of your hand yeah there's no brits to stop them and all seems lost until young donald grabs a ball and kicks a whopper of a shot blasting past the german goalkeeper and equalizing good job kid yeah, these handicapped kids are flooding the field as the Germans open fire. But wait, Pansy's still alive and about to trigger a nuclear bomb. Luckily, fuck, Dave's fuck, able fuck. to dispatch his pit bulls to literally rip Pansy's guts out. Bad times for him. A lot of organ, <laughs> like uh, intestines and stuff getting pulled out here. That's, that's good. <laughs> yep. The kids score the winning goals as the German goalkeeper puts a Luger to his head. And England wins the World Cup 10-7. Oh, the record breaker, that one. Yeah. And after a series of merciless but just trials, the Nazi menace has ended and Dave holds the cup aloft. Then uses it to beat his father down and curb stomp him. Yeah, because he said he was proud of him. Yeah, he's like, pride could get tossed. Hitler sadly swears revenge is back home. Dave's son bottles his old mother. God. And from a, an ensuite hot tub, Dave, Donald, and the rest of the lads, along with some busty babes, say, up your up yours, Britain, and flip us all off. I do like an ensuite hot tub. It's good. It's a giant, like, uh, yeah. bathtub hot Plus tub. It has, yeah, thing. it has a shower with it, too. You know? It's got like seven, fit like seven people in there. That's solid. I mean, but... Nowhere is large enough for one man's ego. Ooh, the end of Big Dave. Fucking, I killed him. I did it. I did yeah. it, Conrad. I murdered him. Enjoy, yeah. The, forever. This is the final installment of Big Dave. Ah, uh, what a trial. Yeah, I definitely recommend Friend of the Show, The Gutter Reviews. Uh, they 
recently here in December did a big uh, article on Big Dave and including an, an interview with writer Grant Morrison. Oh, cool. About some um about both Big Dave and some of their other uh mid um early and mid nineties like very sort of Travesties. like well like you I know that was that's me being facetious but like edgy like designed to push boundaries work and stuff like that it was also like the the new adventures of Hitler and other things like that it's very God, sort of keep it in four like, chan. Like early again, it's sort of just trying to figure out what the lines are and sort of how to push people's buttons and stuff in the nineties. It, 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 it's an interesting interview for sure. So they they were, I mean, I guess they're probably not so Pepe, but you know what I. Mean. No, I mean you know I think this is very much like just sort of general edginess, and of course you know like you know a fair amount of like what do you what do I want to say like disruptive parts in here, like I you know. I've come to him. I'm embrace. I've embraced Big Dave a little bit more than I feel like initially. I guess. <laughs> um, but you know, it's still very like. Listen, certainly objections to be made for Big Dave. Let's not. Let's call. Let's be cards on the table here for I'll sure. Split all those hairs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, let's keep rolling forward, Fox. Because uh, yeah. I want to talk about a team that I like a lot, and that's. Thrill three ABC Warriors. ABC Warriors. So good. I'm so glad to see Joe back. Yeah, good times with the lad with the boys here, the robot boys. Script robot Pat Mills and Tony Skinner, art robot Kevin Walker, letter robot Ellie Deville. You thought we were done talking about chaos just because we did it? Nah, man. Mm-hmm. It's time for even more of that fucking nonsense. Strap right. up, Billy boy. It's time to get horny with a couple of robots. <laughs> Hip deep in chaos. Yeah. The Warriors are back, and this story is called Hellbringer. It's been 10 years since the events of the Chronicles of Chaos, which ended in Prague 790, and chaos is spreading through the Terran Empire. The ABC Warriors have gone their separate ways, mostly. Oh, Hammerstein, we see, is just sort of a head and a torso, at the heart of the evil General Black Blood's weapons manufacturing asteroid, and doesn't seem very pleased about it. But Black uh, Blood's turned off his voice box. Yeah, it's like a sex thing for Black Blood now. It's got to seem be. absolutely. Yeah, he's using parts of Hammerstein's body to create various extremely deadly and painful weapons of war, and he's not even like selling them for money. He's just asking for videos of their use on unarmed civilians and hospitals and stuff so he can show them to Hammerstein as he electroshocks him. My God, he's the, he's just uploading a bunch of snuff to the dark. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. This is the, the depths of the uh, bad parts of the internet, basically. <clears throat> Hammerstein's in despair and thinks he's starting to hallucinate when his old ally or his old colleague uh, Deadlock appears before him. Oh, man. It, I mean, I, I wish it was a hallucination in his case, but <laughs> womp womp. Nope, it's real. Deadlock's here and he needs Hammerstein to reassemble the ABC Warriors to go after a new threat from the Terran Empire an enemy known only as Hellbringer. I mean, that guy sounds awesome. Yeah. Hammerstein says he's a little tied up at the moment as we see uh, Deadlock and Rojas hard at work to defeat the Empire while chilling with some sweet robo bikini babes at the College of Chaos, itself a sweet citadel on the side of a comet, which is pretty neat. (laughs) 
Deadlock sends a psychic blast that reactivates Hammerstein. And uh, he sort of torsos around, collecting his arms scattered around the uh, around the factory floor and getting them reattached as Black Blood comes in, riding on Hammerstein's legs like a chariot. Yeah, it's pretty good. I like his big old coat. <laughs> yeah. Hammerstein beats up Black Blood and hammers his cyber attack dog into the ground. He's got this big, like, uh, you know, sort of bulldog kind of thing that's mm. got a bunch of uh, cybernetic parts on it and stuff like that. Yeah, it's... It's like a half dog, half robot. It's pretty good. Yeah. I like the exhaust ports on its back. Totally. Yeah, good dog body here. Um, he beats up Black Blood, but in the end, he's got to let him rejoin the Warriors, and Black Blood accepts the offer. Yeah, so, better than dying. Yeah, definitely. So now it's time for our st- the, the standard first couple chapters of a ABC Warriors story, uh, the assembling the together. team. Yeah, definitely. And we're starting with our old buddy, Joe Pineapples, who's gone back to being an assassin and sniper for the Terran Empire. Oh, no. Pays the bills, I guess. Yeah, he's working for the baddies. On a sweet motorcycle, we see Joe Pineapples sighting his target, the rebel alien headquarters, where he's going to kill five different heads of state all at once. It's pretty, it's pretty good if you can do it, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. He approaches the base, gunning down guards and then using their bodies as a ramp to jump over the base. <laughs> and then through the ceiling, shoot a multi personnel ricochet bullet in through a window. And as it enters the window, Joe just rides off, not looking back at the explosion or this confirming so the awesome. kill. Well, he, he already knows. knows. Yeah, he knows he's successful because that's how good he is. And then he narrates how the shot will go. And we see that he's right as the bullet like bounces around the room through heads and guts of the aliens, killing them all. And it's like a lot of like, you know, goes through him, then off the view screen, then <laughs> through yeah. that guy's jaw. It's all a that magic stuff. bullet theory. Absolutely. It takes half a second, and Joe thinks that that's still a little sloppy. Mm. He can shave time off that mm. next uh, next uh, ne- next hit. Hey, listen, you always got to go for the personal best because you can't absolutely the best if you can't push him. Definitely, he rides off. Job well done, but finds Hammerstein and Black Blood blocking his path, and he's in no mood for trouble. I know Debbie Downers, the both. Of them. It's true. Hammerstein and Black Blood con- are confronting and recruiting Joe at the same time to join them. But honestly, Joe's pretty happy having sold out to the Empire. He's got money, status, women or whatever. And chaos, honestly, isn't that appealing. It's kind of dumb. Yeah, no, I fucking I love this guy. He's like, look, I got everything I want on every planet. I get to wear cool G-strings. I get to just like be totally hot and rock my bod if I want. You two are like, let's go work for that dumbass again. It's like, I mean, it's the most unappealing offer. Yeah. What's the case to work for chaos? It's not good. You know, yeah, no, it's just like, hey, make everything worse. Yeah, it's true. They disagree, though, of course, because they're jerks as well. Um, And this, of course. Uh, oh, sorry. And then Joe asks, hey, Hammerstein, should you be welded to a workbench right now? <laughs> yeah, pretty good. And Hammerstein shocked that Joe knew about that and didn't come to save him. And this is the point about chaos also, where it's like, well, maybe you're into that sort of thing. I don't know. You know, exactly. Anyway, Joe rejects the recruitment offer. So it's time for a fight. He and Hammerstein just sort of get into a knockdown drag out. They fall into a lava pool as they do. 
Yeah, Joe, it's very Northmen, you know, both of them grunting near lava. Absolutely. Joe pulls out some kind of extending laser chain knife, one that Black Blood made, apparently. They keep fighting, but eventually Black Blood decides to employ the old reverse psychology technique, you know. We only want the best for our mission, and it seems like Joe's over the hill. So let's go get Z-Sassassin, the hit droid, to help us out instead. This gets Joe's dander up because he's the best, and he'll join their stupid ABC warriors to prove it. Yeah, he'd kill him otherwise. Like You get that guy, I'll just kill all of you. So I'm going to do it. It's a very Vegeta move. Absolutely. Yeah, You can't say I'm... I'll work for your dumb and futile cause to prove that I'm the best. Yeah. <clears throat> Recruitment successful. Next time, who cares loses. <laughs> Which is like a reference to like the SAS motto of like who dares wins, you know? Oh, okay. That's pretty good. Yeah, I'm interested to see this start back up. I've still got a little bit of my like um, dislike of the central joke of ABC Warriors being that Hammerstein's a chump, I guess. Yeah, no, it's time for him to just kind of get his own, you know? I And yeah. honest to God, I think that, that it's all also at odds with the fact that, you know, Deadlock is supposed to be the cool one. And I'm like, yeah, Deadlock's literally used to be so awesome. And now it's just like chaos all the time. And who gives a shit about it? Yeah, it's too like, chaotic, you know? It's like LOL Joker meme. Totally, yeah, he's a freaking waffle motorboat kind of guy and yeah, it's too we much live in a society you know come on be be acceptable for god's sake anyway speaking of things that are unacceptable fox let's take a quick break and talk about non-thrills covers and nerve centers yeah we could do that yeah come on okay i will fine 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 fucking fine prog 904 ABC Warriors, that's amazing band confessions, plus Dread with a chin band-aid in this montage cover by Dermot Power. He got a little boo-boo. Yeah, and it's just all I mean, he's very the... craggy, so he's going to cut some. Absolutely. Yeah, he's got a lot of hard edges, definitely. And this is very, you know, montage cover, so all the different thrills and stuff all in one big image. In the nerve center, it looks like this is a, a jumping on prog, because we've got the standard... Tharg introduction and breakdown of Beetlejuicean phrases here. The nerve center also has a picture or has a picture. I should say, sorry. The the input page is a picture of a zombie judge, Radland Justice, and letters discuss taking progs to read while waiting for a haircut. That's pretty good. Another another tries to sum up common tropes of 2080 letters. There's a Tharg haiku and just so making fun of the old of that old uh, Fink Brothers album. And final one asks for help with dealing with the girl, the news agent that looks at him weird when he buys his weekly prog. I think she thinks you're weird. <clears throat> Definitely. Po- That's one of the options that Tharg presents for sure. Prog 905, crash and burn. Dermot Power paints a mechanismo in profile as Dread, badgeless and chained, walks away from the crash ship into the wilderness of Hestia. Say again, Fox, I'm sorry. I said very cool. Sorry, I'm yeah. my, my sickness. Oh, no, no problem. Sorry, forcing you forcing you against your will to do this. I know. And no, I, I no, appreciate no. it. In the Nerve Center, Tharg demands more reader mail and lets us know that we can now submit it via that newfangled medium of email. Whoa, Tharg at rich b.demon.co.uk. <laughs> yeah, which I... 
I like a lot because this means that it's clearly uh, former editor Richard Burton's personal email server, basically, that he's just created a Thorg alias for. Means and listen, they, I mean, I guess I guess they wouldn't spring for it at the fucking office. Uh, yeah, they can't just they can't yet justify a business case to like buy 2000ad.com or .co.uk and have an email address from there yet, you know? I guess. I will I will say that like this is pretty early for email. I was going to ask when you got your first email address if you remember. Oh my god. Well, we we were AOL first. Mm-hmm. This would have been an L. Uh like it was in the 90s. Yeah. Uh like I but I want to say it was like mid I think at this point I was still using my dad. I was sharing an email inbox with my dad's CompuServe account. Oh yeah, that's that's in there. And it was one of these things where it's like I mostly used it um, to ask people on message boards for hints about beating the uh, uh, Day of the Tentacle and that uh, oh, the cool. Indiana Jones and Fate of Atlantis. Yeah, those also good point and click adventure games, you know. And anyway, there's also pretty good Joe Pineapple's pinup here. Yeah, very good. Love me some Joe. And the input page is a picture of a grinning dread. It must be the baking soda, arm and baton, instead of arm and hammer. Letters compliment Mambo and are excited for a Strontium Dog reunion. Notice that there's a TV character out there named Tharg. And there's requests for more female judges and a letter complimenting yes. recent female characters like Anderson and Boudicca. And general, congrats for getting to Prog 900. Yeah, I mean, there's like, there's a decent amount of female judges at this point, I'd say. Yeah. I don't know. Don't know if I would consider Boudicca like the, the star child, but. <laughs> she wasn't great, but, you know, she, but she was there. there, you know. Yeah. Like, I think, honestly, at this point, actually, I'm just thinking about the current judges that we know. I feel like, honestly, all the judge main, all the. All the judges that I can think of that are full, like all the like the only male, the only male judge supporting character is like is a young rookie judge giant that we mm. just saw get his full badge in the magazine. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, Magruder, Hershey, Anderson, even like Castillo in yeah. um, in, in Wilderlands, or like some some bonus characters that we've had, or some side characters we've had in um the magazine with their own stories like judge Karen and judge Janice are all, all lady judges. Yeah. They seem, I think they're on a more progressive kick for that. You know, I mean, it also turns out that there's like just a lot of bad dudes or, or judges that turn bad. That are That's true. I guess Grice was our most recent. Yeah, yeah. Like evil judge dude in there. And then the prog ends with an ad for the super game boy. Part of that late, Nine, uh, late sixteen oh, yeah? bit console era where they just loved having things that plugged into the console. Basically. I mean, I had that so that we could play our our, uh, yeah, our play Game, Game Boy, Boy games, games on. on the TV. Definitely, yeah, it's pretty good. We played. That's how I played uh, Mario Land. Nice. Prog nine oh six, and this is when I realized that all the covers this episode are by Dermot Power, and he'll have two more next episode as well. <laughs> This time we got a big group fo- a group image of the a- ABC Warriors, including Joe Pineapple's big rifle that says uh, virtually fat free on the side. Yeah. A very 90s thing, I think. The Magnificent <laughs> Seven. Woo! In the Nerve Center, Tharg asks if readers want capsule recaps of the stories like in the Prague uh-huh. or even title pages like we have in the magazine currently. Like basically little intros to what's going, like what the 
what the deal with this story is, and then maybe a quick recap of what happened previously. It's a slippery slope back to the 80s or 70s, I should say, where it's yeah, like I mean, re- one page recaps. Yeah. I mean, we had some of that, but it like, and that's how they do it in the magazine, actually, where they kind of ha- like every story has a title page with the credits and yeah. then both a little blurb uh, again explaining what yeah last time on dragon ball z yeah it's both last time on dragon ball z but also one that's like um you know dragon ball z is like is a reference to you know there's this dude named goku and he's going after these balls that grant you wishes (laughs) that kind of thing okay i guess if Um, you're just like jumping in for the first time some context yeah i mean I think it's helpful if you're just jumping in and I think it's easy for us to forget like, you know, that you're getting one, one, a week, one prog a week. So it can be, you can maybe forget what just, what happened by the time you get the new one or something like that, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Um, in the middle of ABC Warriors in in Prague 906, there's <laughs> a really aw- there's an awesome ad for Mortal Kombat 2, which is just a two a two page spread that's all white with the words "no hype required" written in the middle. Pretty accurate, though. Pretty yeah, accurate. Yeah, I just love this. It's a great example of the mid '90s video game ad where they barely show you the game and often explicitly call you an idiot as part of the ad for video <laughs> game advertising. I mean, I mean, Mortal Kombat: The Cabinet was really successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were still finding secrets uh, until like years ago. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm I'm not saying that like. Oh no, no, I'm I, just saying like I I like I like their panache here, but yes, I agree. A lot of the things that we've seen in the pages of this comic book are "Don't be an idiot, buy Sonic." You. I mean, I yeah, I've just I just I've just read a thing about like a like a Twitter thread about this, which was just all of these '90s video game advertisements where like. You know, I, th- I think the most famous one is for the game Daikatana, where it's just like it's just a a page that says like a uh, John Ramirez, but to make you his bitch, you know. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> and it's like if Got Milk was fuck you, drink milk. <laughs> literally, it's just all these ads that are like, "Hey, idiot, buy this game, or you're stupid." You know, <laughs> like this is bold. You know, I don't yeah, know. No, it's it's trying to speak to the kids and their uh, general malaise and disdain yeah 90s you know history's over and everyone's got to be insulted into buying video games basically (laughs) i mean (laughs) successful i guess it worked out mid-issue there's an ad for a david gemmel graphic novel and a new comic book based on irish puppet kids show zig and zag okay and then there either wasn't an input page this issue or it wasn't included in the scans that we have 907 Dermot Power finishes this run with Dread putting his badge back on as Magruder's looks stricken. It's a savage planet, and exclusive pictures are inside. Whoa. In the nerve center, the nerve center this time is mostly an article by Dread film producer Charles Lippincutt explaining the screenwriting process that William Wisher used for the for the Dread film, although it's also got like a long aside about sort of how the like how they sort of figured out the plot for Terminator 2, which Wisher also wrote, I guess. Yeah. And then there's only a very tiny input page this time, like in the corner of of a of half a page. The letter asking for a mug for a rude co-worker and another guessing that Wilderlands will end with Dread becoming chief judge, which is unlikely. I'll, yeah. I'll spoil you that much. I mean, I, I'm going to put my money on nope. 
Just because, like, I just don't know how many stories. Like, it's so much. Like, telling stories about a street judge seems so much easier than about the chief judge and having to deal with administrative things. I yeah, guess. no, I I can't wait to to see the part where of of Law and Order where they have to literally write all of the filings and like talk to their paralegals and then you know, Ooh, yeah, the, the paperwork section. Yeah. yeah, we're watching them wait at the courthouse for their appointed time to like deliver the thing and. You know, yeah, the, the real yeah. the real fun stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. All no steak, no sizzle, buddy. That's what I like. <laughs> <laughs> all just, filler, just, no all filler, no thriller. <laughs> I quite literally I it, the, for your steak metaphor. I just want an empty pan and I want to stare at it. Exactly. Then this issue ends with an extent like must have been a, a pull out like a, like a folded like three three folded page or something. For a fantasy and sci-fi book club, where you can get five books for 50 pence each. Yeah, pretty good. And there's some Dread and Batman stuff in there, including Dread Batman, the Judgment on Gotham <laughs> comic. <laughs> and a bunch of fantasy novels from that I recognize from my own youth, including like uh, books from authors like Terry Pratchett, Douglas Adams, Robert Jordan, and a bunch of uh, various adaptions of sci-fi movies by Alan Dean Foster as well. <laughs> But speaking of tales of uh, weird robots, Fox. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. We can continue on with Thrill 4 Robo Hunter. I really like Ryan Hughes. Very yeah, it's good. I keep calling him Ro- Ryan Johnson when I'm talking about <laughs> things. The, the Knives Out and Star Wars guy. And yeah, no yeah. Good. Hughes. He's a fun, he's a fontsman now, Ryan Hughes. He makes fonts. Oh, really? That's pretty rad. So this one's scripted about Peter Hogan, art about Ryan Hughes, letting her about Ellie DeVille. This one's called Metrobolus. Oh, that's labored. Hard, hard, hard for me to say. It's a rainy night at a building site, and the robot foreman's bringing his guys down in the face of coming acid rain over the objections of the human boss. But up on one of the uh, scaffoldings or whatever, a silver robot named One Ton won't go because he's got to get his friend a tiny wrench robot called Wrenchy. Yeah, and also, man, why these wrench robots? They're all they're like just like the little like they're like a little dog that you bring to the site to the site, you know? Yeah, it reminds me of those uh, those shoes from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. They just get absolutely out and make havoc. Absolutely, they're gonna get dipped. <laughs> um. But as so, as one ton does, he steps on a beam that gets struck by lightning, and he falls Jesus. to his doom. Yeah, not great. I mean, he could have also gotten struck by lightning, you know? It's, yeah, there's lightning involved, but mostly falling to his doom as well. Yeah, mostly his doom. Yeah. A few months later, and totally oblivious, Sam Slade's taking calls from folks all over the city with remote reports of missing robots including one that made off with all the sewer blueprints. Oh, that's not great. That's yeah. wait. You don't have that like down at city hall. Like it just had the originals. I guess this is, this might be one of those, um, the future of 1994, where just, you wouldn't think that they'd all be scanned in as well. You know? Yeah. You, Cause you got to submit them before you do anything. Yeah, Totally. Sam gets a call from from Mayor Handcart, who tells Sam there's an epidemic of missing robots, and it's a panic, so she asks him to come to a meeting at her office in two hours. 
I mean, she she's also like, yeah, you and like every other robo hunter got lots of work, but you, Sam, you got to come. I'm like, why not she's bring specific- all the robo hunters? Yeah, she's specifically very flirty with Sam for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Sam rushes to get ready, including getting putting on a robot bolo tie. But as he does, the tie says, "His time has come. Prepare to meet the engineer, <laughs> the great engineer, and tightens up, choking him." And I always knew a bolo tie <laughs> would be the death of Sam. It's tough. I like Sam's that his t- mouth turns into a butthole. Though. I'm like, ooh, can't, he can't good. breathe. He's trying to suck air, you know. <laughs> Sam's tie is talking, trying to kill him. It takes a mo- it takes quite a while for Hoagie and Stogie to realize what's going on. And in that time, Sam's able to overpower the tie. I mean, but one it's would not fucking done. hope. Yeah. It's not done yet, though. And in the end, he's forced to just throw the tie out the window. <laughs> How's that for a tiebreaker, Fox? Uh, pretty good. Good <laughs> the job, tie men- Stogie. Yeah, we got these jokes. The time mentioned that's uh, someone called Silver. So as Sam heads out to the mayor's office, he tells Stogie to check on files for missing robots in the last six months related to someone or something called Silver and tells Hoagie to get the window fixed. Fixed to what? Waka waka. God. Meanwhile, <clears throat> in the sewers, the robot from the first episode, from the first chapter of this story, One Ton Silver's making plans. Oh, get it? <clears throat> Not really. I it's don't Long know. John Silver. Oh, that's why he has the grudge. Of course, and the eye patch too. Yeah, good yeah. call. Anyway, they got big plans involving nanobots and cutting crews. They've killed off all the Robo Hunters except for Sam. It seems, and their plan will be complete in a few days on July fourth. That Fox will be their Independence Day as well. Oh yeah, as they turn Manhattan. Into Robo Hatton. God, they're really forcing that. Robo Hatton. <laughs> and then and then all the lady robots are gonna be teaching her story of oh. Robo Hatton. Fox. Right. At her spacious office, Mayor Handcart tells Sam that it's not just a bunch of robot disappearances going on, but also weird freight hijackings of tools, cables, and steel plates. And these runaway robots are clearly up to something, she says. Though she hasn't heard of Silver and keeps calling Sam Samuel and, again, being pretty flirty as these things go. I mean, it's good to be in with the mayor, right? Yeah. We learn her name is Helena, and Sam's skeptical about this big conspiracy stuff. It's July 7th or 2nd, and Sam is running down leads. He sends Hoagie undercover to that construction site from the start of the story, not a good idea honestly he checks out other stuff i don't know it seems to work out a little bit it does but only because of his sheer dumb luck ah that's true delighted at the prospect of going undercover hoagie dives into his disguise closet and there's a pretty decent joke in here i think about him not knowing the difference between a joist and a girder and hoagie comes back that joist wrote ulysses and girder wrote faust (laughs) which i think is pretty solid his disguise is also pretty pretty decent, I think, although Stogie says it's a little bit too lumberjack. Hoagie goes down to the building site where he carries a beam on his shoulder and does that classic bit where he keeps turning around and hitting people with the beam. That's pretty good. Also, he's the only non-nude robot. It's true, yeah. Lot. Well, listen, it's probably a safety thing, honestly. You don't want to be wearing too many clothes or get caught in like a rivet gun or... 
whatever else they do at building <laughs> sites. I don't know. I mean, they, they all still wear hard hats, which I appreciate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, not a lot of clothes. Yeah. Hard hat, steel, steel-toed boots, no pants. <laughs> well, steel-toed treads. Oh, yeah, steel-toed feet. I guess they all have those, actually. <laughs> Terrible. Pretty good. I think that. The foreman yells at him, tells him to stay away from the incredibly dangerous hole over there. So he checks <laughs> well, it there's out. There's your problem. There's your problem. It's a giant hole. <laughs> and when he when Hoagie goes to check it out, another robot asks if he wants to come to a secret midnight meeting to find out one ton Silver's plans for robots to take over the city. Nice. Good detective work here. I know. Listen, job sites are a chatty place. Yeah. So Hoagie's at this massive robot meeting in the middle of a giant cave. He's sort of, you know, Matrix revolutionings it, it here, you know. Um, when he makes friends with a robot couple named Cleo and Antimony, and he, of course, introduces himself as an undercover construction worker. And, and her response, that must, that must be so nice for you. <laughs> They're these, like, yuppies that are just, like, not really paying attention to what he's saying. It's excellent. Yes. Yes. That's what one of the, that's what antimony says in response to everything. And MC comes out to the stage, which is, which is a giant gear. I should mention and introduces one ton silver. Silver tells his story of working on a construction site. When the acid rains came, they forced him to keep working during it. And then he fell into a giant pit and no one came looking for him, which is not how I remember it happening, but whatever. (laughs) All robots are just cheap labor and scrap metal to humans. But like a fancy droid butts in and says, hey, I'm quite expensive, actually. I'm My humans very care about man. me. Yeah. And Silver's like, ah, what happens when you get obsolete? They'll get rid of you like everybody else. Yeah, planned obsolescence, man. It's mm-hmm. a real bitch. Totally. Eventually, Silver says his friends found him, patched him up, and they explored this massive underground cave system beneath the city and then start on their current quest, which will come to fruition tomorrow on July 4th. And humans won't be able to stop them because they've introduced nanobots into the city's water supply, really not which will great. turn all the humans into mindless zombies, deactivating their forward you know, lobe of their brains or whatever. <laughs> Hoagie runs to so warn. It'll it'll do what exactly? Fucking brain, just disable parts of their brains and zombify them. Did he get Mandela on the phone and play his drum to everybody? I don't know. <laughs> oh, they're just little Mandelas with tiny little. <laughs> At last, finally, um, Hoagie, Hoagie runs home to warn Sam about what's going on, but arrives just in time. Um, to see Sam drink a glass of water and he can't do anything to stop him. So Sam gets zombified. I mean, oh no. Alex Jones is right. They're putting fluoride in the drinking water, turning the front, making the robots gay. Fox, it's terrible. Anyway, next time on Robo Hunter, tiny, ha- tiny happy people holding hands, etc. It's pretty good. Uh, I like the art a lot because everything's a little goofy. I think yeah. that's and and the story's a little game. I think that's where Robo Hunter's at its best. Yeah, I think this does a good job of like having both some written and um drawn gags. Yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. Just kind of being fun and light, honestly. And I think that's really what, what we're looking for with Robo Hunter. Yeah. As long as it doesn't just have like nonstop singing, I'm pretty okay. Even that was fine. Yeah. I feel like I feel like 
as down as I might have been on the on on the song year when it was happening, I've, I've lightened up on it as the decades have gone by. You know? I mean, yeah, but that's because it's in our past. We're not going it's to true. be revisiting it again. It's true. That's true. But hey, speaking of things in our future, Fox, that I'm also very excited about. Oh my god, it's our present, and I cannot wait because it is let's, a gift. Get it? Yeah, present gift. Yeah, ooh, I fucking ooh, nailed ooh. it. Yeah, my presence is my present, Fox. <laughs> Let's get started. My gift. Oh, 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 hey, back at you. It's Thrill Five Button Man. It's gifted by John Wagner, Art Robot Arthur Ranson, Letting Robot Steve Potter, Button Man Return. It's so good. It's still so good. Oh, yeah. On a sheet of paper with a gun and a bloody fingerprint is how we start (laughs) this story. A confession from Harry Exton. He gives his backstory and like CV, basically, and says that. The corpse that was identified as him recently was, in fact, a double, and part of his life as a player in the game in a game of death for the very rich as a button man. Ooh, they said the name of the movie in the movie. That's how you start off, you know. It's a hot tub time machine. Yeah, <laughs> snakes on a plane. In a, in a busy in a busy in a busy hospital. We see Harry in a coma. Presumably, this is right after the events of uh, the first Button Man story when he sort of stumbled in someplace like covered in blood, having killed that uh, psychiatrist or whatever. There's a cop on the door and in his room, keeping an eye on him just to arrest him when he wakes up, basically. When a doctor and nurse come in and shoot one cop with a dart gun and karate chop the other. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Ass Kicker. They inject Harry with some kind of drug, and he thinks back to that guy he killed on the train track saying that you can't quit the game. And then he just has a big, like, one-page montage of the first story, the first Button Man story, basically, his buddy Cal, saying they don't like, saying voices don't like loose ends. The doctor that was his voice saying he's a danger to him if he's not in the game, and then that same doctor's head floating in the fish tank beside so, that lion fish. So fucking awesome. Real good. Eventually, Harry comes around in a nice big bed with a nurse in white gloves standing over him as a beautiful red-haired woman, Mrs. Elmore, appears and says Harry will be back on his feet soon. Darling. She, she calls him darling as he falls asleep again, and we see a ring with some big old diamonds on her finger. Oh, yeah. No, that's a rock. All right. Yeah. Later, she's on the phone saying they've begun reducing sedation. We see that Henry has tumbled out of bed and is walking around a little. He asks where he is, and she says, home, of course, in upstate New York. Don't you remember? We're in upstate New York, and I'm your definitely wife. Yeah, more of an Ithaca uh, false identity. <laughs> Albany, maybe. <laughs> Harry wants to know what the hell is going on as the nurse stands ominously in the doorway. Redhead explains she's Harry's wife, which he doesn't believe, but then passes out. (laughs) She is the nurse called the doctor, and he soon arrives and doesn't find anything wrong with Harry. There's several times people say say that he's strong as an ox, basically. Yeah, I mean, listen, he is is pretty strong. (laughs) Yeah, and they just tell him to avoid hunting accidents into the future. Your amnesia should clear up soon. Yeah, no problem. I've got to mention here that this doctor is apparently based, his look is based on a Robo Hunter scribe, Peter Hogan, actually. Whoa. And I think he's got kind of a, uh, 
kind of the look of that of the dude that um that was Giles on on Buffy the Vampire oh, Slayer. Yeah, weird. I was actually just watching something the other day, and he does look kind of got that like you know tiny glasses British kind of look. I guess mm-hmm. like I I have a big old bookstore full of magic books. Mm-hmm. Exactly. After the doctor leaves, the redhead talks to Harry privately. Oh, they drop pretense quick, which I very much appreciate. Yeah, well, she's just letting them in on what the cover story is here. He's Harold Martin Elmore, naturalized U.S. citizen via Britain, semi-retired and recently injured in a hunting accident. This redhead is his wife named Cora. But in reality, this is all part of the game because Harry's the best button man ever and a powerful man wants Harry to come work for him. Ooh. How how was the honeymoon? (laughs) Yeah. Because he starts asking about their cover identity, et cetera, because she talks like, oh, we met at a party and fell in love and got married three weeks later, that kind of stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Harry's against it from the start, but wants to meet this new patron before before he makes any decisions. Cora agrees and tells Harry to trust her, which means that you should absolutely not, but whatever. I mean, listen, I, anything to meet Senator A.J. Jacklin. That's right. A helicopter lands at the secluded house they're at, and U.S. Senator A.J. Jacklin comes out. He talks to Harry privately. He knows all about Harry's record. 30 contests, 30 wins, 18 kills, which is more than we saw in chapter one of Button Man, but there were some montages of Harry being successful oh, yeah. and stuff, so it's fine. Jacqueline took big risks getting Harry safely out of England and, you know, healed from his gunshot wounds and stuff. But hey, Late- listen, you want to back out, you can back out, but I mean, yeah. you also probably don't want to back out. You know I, mean, I mean, he makes him a deal, like be, be my Button Man for a year and then they'll be even and Harry can even walk away if he wants. And also lots of money. Yeah, Harry wants to know what's in it for the senator, and he says, hey, man, I'm a gambler, you know, but in the (laughs) end... And I got to know when to hold him, know when to fold him. I know when to walk away, but in this case, I also appreciate when I make a bet and the odds are in my favor, if you know what I'm saying. Thumb on the scale. Yeah, Harry agrees, and Jacqueline says Cora will be his handler and, you know, General Gal Friday here, and then flies off. Alone again, Harry asks oh if God. Cora is also having her strings pulled by the senator. As and she said, plays with the strings on her tongue. Yeah, it's a metaphor. He, yeah, and she says she's just doing her job as Harry literally pulls the string on her dress. She stands before him naked. Do you like what you see? She asks. And as the panels tumble away and they embrace, Harry says, it's what I can't see that worries me. Oh. Ooh, this is good. <laughs> it's good writing. It's already just steamy hot. Really great stuff here. Also, once again, fantastic art and fantastic, you know, again, as the dress slips off, that's when the, the panels start falling. You know what I mean? Yeah, they sort of like they kind of go at like off kilter angles and sort of like uh, like a bunch of cards being dropped out of a deck or something. Yeah, like and that. are really they neat. also falling for each? Mm-hmm. Oh, man. It's, it's spicy. It's spicy. <laughs> In New York City for his first job, Cora is kidding Harry out with a bunch of gadgets, like a, a retractable knife in his shoe, a cyanide pill shooting fountain pen, a watch with a garrot wire, all that stuff. Harry's none skeptical. of these things. I mean, spoilers. None of these things will come in handy. 
I mean, not in this one, but who's no. to say going forward, you know. I'm excited like, that they, I hope that they win in this one. Yeah. We we just got to put them on the bulletin board, basically, and see yeah, how it you goes. Know, it's Chekhov's gun. Like, it, at some point, you got to you gotta shoe knife somebody. Chekhov's shoe knife? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck so you. Shoe <laughs> knife. <laughs> like a fucking roadhouse. It's good, oh, you know. Oh, God, yeah. Um. Harry, yeah, and Harry's skeptical, and he's like, "Maybe I'll just use this," and has like a silenced pistol. And he puts literally correct, literally very correct. <laughs> she also gives him like a one of those like tape, like a a diary. It's like one of those like mini tape recorders with a calculator built into it and stuff, which is actually a plastic explosive. <laughs> They're fucking Harry's, great. Yeah, Harry's nervous about this whole thing because the fight's going to be in public. Though yeah, Cora assures like him, a good idea. No, Cora assures him though that the security cameras will be turned off, and if he's as he complains, she gets on the phone to prepare to call the fight off. But Harry stops her. He's in. He just likes bitching about it, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, listen, all right, like, what are you here for if not to hear me complain about stuff? Yeah, she puts a red carnation on his lapel, which is the signal that he's one of the players in the game, and heads into the American Museum of Natural History in New York. Really a uh, wonderful museum. Definitely. And I think Ranson does a really good job of sort of bringing it to light, just drawing oh, a yeah. bunch of different, you know, installations of dinosaur skeletons and stuffed like wild animals and stuff like that. Yeah, very cool. Amid that stuff, Harry walks looking for his target. Um, he thinks that he should have walked away um, knowing that his target's 13 and 1 and just going over some of the uh, the rules, like that markers can be taken instead of killing in this one and things like that. Mm. He enters the reptile room and a guard asks if he's looking for anything in particular. Harry says no. And the guard asks if he's look if uh, if he sees it now. And we see that he's got both a red carnation and a revolver held Ooh. in belt level. He's fucking iced him here, Fox. It's no good. It's not good. Time to go to the bathroom. Yeah. He, um, Harry knows he should have spotted this guy. He's like rusty. He's out of practice. This button man, Arnold, leads Harry to a secluded part of the museum to uh, to ace him, to take him out, promising to be quick. When suddenly a bunch of kids come screaming down the hallway. <laughs> this is amazing. Arnold is distracted and Harry makes a move, oh. chopping Arnold under the nose. They so struggle. Good. They struggle for his gun and it goes off and the kids scream as Harry maneuvers Arnold uh, to the top of a flight of stairs and pushes him down it. That just aims his gun, baby. It's time to murder this. Yeah. Arnold falls awkwardly hitting his head and Harry draws down on him. Now it's his turn. Harry fires, catching Arnold in the shoulder, but the button man runs and Harry gives chase, pushing through a crowd. As he makes his way out, Arnold shoots a cop and goes out the front door of the oh. museum into Central Park. Yeah, no, it's really gone off the rails. This dude's a fucking mess. This all, this whole section really reminds me of uh, that part in the movie, uh, The Untouchables. Yeah, yeah. With you know, with the baby carriage and the gunfight at the uh, at the train station and yeah, stuff that was like real that. Fucked. Just anytime there's a gunfight around stairs, I guess I think of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this whole situation's a mess. And Harry reflects that even at this, that he should have walked away at this point. He's sort of in hindsight here. Arnold's broken the rules and stuff. He's basically won automatically. But Harry doesn't like loose ends. Nah, man. Gotta ice him. Yeah. He pursues Arnold, taunting him as they trade shots in the uh, in Central Park. 
Harry finally shoots Arnold in the leg and he collapses onto the Alice in Wonderland statue mm-hmm. in the middle of the park. As we see policemen massing outside the the, 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 the Natural History Museum. In Central Park. I mean, I wonder if this is, because they always, I mean, it's a very, uh, uh, mm. uh, they use a lot of imagery in this comic book. So I wonder yeah, what the significance of Alice in Because I believe, because I, mean, I believe because it, it's uh, uh, the Mad Hatter, the yeah, it's it's church like the mouse. tea party, so yeah. it's like the yeah, the church mouse and the uh, and the March Hare or whatever. Yeah, and it's very well. I think like you know, this is very much um, you know Harry going back down the rabbit hole of being a button man, right? Mm, yeah, through the looking that, glass. Yeah, that's sort of the most basic one that I can think. And also just a good just juxtaposition of these very adult and violent moments and something that's so like you know built for kids and stuff. Yeah, well, well, and and to have him just sh- shoot him right through the mouth. God. Also, um, I don't think it's actually. I think there's different text on it here, but there's a um, a quote from the from the Jabberwocky written sort of around the base of the statue. Oh, really? I think you know, which I think is also a good like sort of you know that terrifying monster that is sort of both Harry Exton himself and his um ambition or need to be part of this game i think very good um so yeah to the alice in wonderland statue um arnold asks if harry will take his marker but harry puts on gloves and takes arnold's revolver saying that he broke the rules and shot a cop plus it's personal so he takes the gun puts it in arnold's mouth and all we hear is a gunshot and see blood splattering onto the Alice statue. Oh, so <laughs> Harry puts the gun in Arnold's hand and walks off into the woods of the park. The cops arrive on the scene and briefly think it's a suicide, but he's definitely been shot a couple times as well. So not that likely. You got to <laughs> yeah. think. I, uh, I, re- I like that immediate response from detective. Like, when was the last time you saw a, a suicide with multiple wounds? <laughs> He's got the gun in his hand. I don't know. All right. Okay. I mean, some. I will say I've I've heard this just because of pursuing conspiracy things. But apparently, it's not unusual for people to fire twice, like when commit, like just some rigor mortis or something like that. Like oh, it's a double whoa. action pistol or something. Crazy. But you you wouldn't be shot in the leg and chest. You know, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Later. Harry's back with Cora as she treats his wound. I think he got like grazed during that initial scuffle with Arnold when the shot went off. Yeah, something. Because it's not like he doesn't have a bullet in him. I think it just sort of like it's sort of this long, longish wound on 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 his on his chest. You know, plus flexing. Yeah, well, yeah, he's showing off that six pack and just general chest definition. I just so many contours. Yeah, and he says he wants to approve the jobs from start to finish from now on. I mean, Cora, it's fair. Yeah, yeah, definitely. This is a clusterfuck. Um, Cora agrees, and later we see a news article that a body has been identified as Harry Exton. So he's now officially dead in England. Cora says this is due to the senator's influence, and she reminds him that he's a powerful man that can be a good friend or a bad enemy. So watch your shit. I mean, you know, he doesn't like people who are two-headed snakes, so yeah, I think that he's got to watch his shit. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Next time on Button Man, murder at the movies. Oh, great! I love it. I love a. I love a good like threatening movie 
situation, you know? Mm, kind of. I admit there was a period of my more paranoid part of my life where I was really terrified of like being killed in a movie. Oh, really? I mean, reason. in the U.S., I feel like that, you know, there yeah, is a weird, real fear. A weird nightmare scenario that I had of just random violence. Well, I you guess, also, but, I mean, you were going to the movies, right? Like I was movies. going to the movies a lot for a while. Yeah. Anyway, man. Good start to this button man story. I'm very excited that, you know, we're just jumping back in and it seems like it's lost so none good. of its n- none of its amazing qualities. It's really good. I fucking <laughs> It's great. It's so well with- done, Conrad. I just I hope it goes on. Absolutely. And with that said, you know, maybe academic now, but I would like to know your top and bottom thrills. Although I should mention, of course, that we're talking about Judge Dredd in the Wilder Zone, so that's sort of off continuity. So that's not up for um, for uh, top and bottom thrill nominations at this point. Yeah, all right. That's uh, yeah, totally get it. Uh, let me think here. Well, ABC Warriors was fantastic, but it's all set up, right? Like we've sure. seen this done now multiple times. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, yeah. Very much. Yeah. A key part of ABC Warriors is always getting the team together. But you gotta you gotta do it. Plus, uh, you know, I feel like all of the setup was was very in character, uh, very strange. Uh, I'm not looking forward to the chaos bits, but you know, from what I've seen so far, everything's really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robo Hunter, pleasantly surprised. Honestly, yeah, uh, I really I felt like it's it's in a little bit more of its own now, and I hope it sort of keeps this sort of silly uh, kind of lighthearted uh, atmosphere too too serious or too off the rails insane the way that it had been this feels like a good fresh start Mm -hmm. uh and uh of course baby you know my top's going to button man (laughs) (laughs) and button man's fantastic i mean we did just talk about it and i love it i love every single scene i love the way that like you know the panels are drawn especially when action's going on or even seductive action it's just very Mm. very very um fast paced you're done with it before you know it because you're just reading and experiencing everything so well yeah really feel like it it's got just such a great pace and the way that it that you can read it and watch it is it's almost it's almost perfect um and baby you know my bottom's gonna be fuck, fuck big Dave. <laughs> uh and with that conrad of the four options you have i'd love to the world is waiting what are your tops oh man um Ooh, I got to echo a lot of your statements, honestly. Um, I'm enjoying this Robo Hunter um, section. I think it's pretty fun. Um, I am, like, again, pleasant. I'm enjoying um, ABC Warriors. It's doing what it's setting out to do, I think. It sort of has its own specific kind of beats. And, you know, all these ABC Warriors stories are always a little bit more long-term than our, some of our other thrills, I think, There's, and have these sort of specific tropes and stuff. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, I feel like we've already both gushed over Button Man, but it's very much just so, always a high point. I mean, it's just having a taut, like, you know, high intrigue thriller, like film just in the middle of our comic book. Basically. Yeah, it's really, really great. Like one That's of those a great like, way of putting it. Because I always like think of it less as like a big, like, you know, explosions and like, um, you know, post die hard kind of um action movie but more actually like one of those like 70s ones like day of the condor or the eiger sanction or something like that you know a lot of talking and then there's occasionally gunfights and stuff but you know they're very yeah. low key you know it's your classic thrillers you know yeah and it's like and it's and it's also a pot boiler of just sort of the relation like in this case 
now, especially this relationship between um, Harry and Cora, where they definitely like, you know, he definitely doesn't trust her. And she's like a cipher that we, you know, she clearly has like wheels within wheels and stuff like that. That's yeah, really, yeah. a really cool story. And I did, I'm just really loving it. It's really great to have it in here. And of course, you know, the writing's really top notch, but also Arthur Ranson with his realistic style again, makes it feel very film-like and very real, you know, and, you know, makes it seem like these are, you know, people being like, it's depicting people played by actors and stuff. Like if, yeah. if, if this, if you just said this was like, a comicization of a movie just using still frames from the film. Oh, you'd believe it. It, would, it would be believable for sure. Like, you know, you barely, if you made this, if you made a button man movie, you wouldn't need much more than this. Yeah. Like, then the comic basically. And it's like, well, there you go. That's, you know, Wagner and Ranson have, have done all the work for you. Basically. I mean, you know, in the world of like, everybody's making these like longer form television shows. I'm so surprised that this is unearned in some way. There's definitely been, I think it's been optioned a couple times, but you know, uh, get caught in development hell and all that kind of stuff. You know, yeah. we did de- like, I could, I, I feel like I can almost guarantee that if history of violence had done better then we would have definitely had a button man movie by now, uh. you know, but it's just one of those, like, I don't know how the film industry works or something like that. <sighs> Anyway, Button Man at my top highest recommendation. Always love Button Man. Uh, bottom happy to go with Big Dave. You know, I appreciated. <laughs> I got some fun out of it and appreciated it. But you know, in the end, like it is very much you know edge lord ed- ed- edge lording mm-hmm. stuff just to mm-hmm. kind of like you know make to freak out the squares or whatever and at this point i've decided to stop you know i'll chuckle along instead of be instead of doing what they what what uh morrison and miller actually want me to do which is be angry you know i spit on your grave big dave i'm just like yeah no that's kind of funny i don't know like this is a ridiculous situation you know and in the end like poofs isn't an insult it has a lot of meaning for me like it's you know it's like when someone talks, when someone calls someone a wanker or talks about bollocks, like these just nonsense words to me. They don't, they don't. My favorite anything. is bellend. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, the, all these terms that would get you in trouble if you said them in a, like a British elementary school, but are used as fun words on like American children's television. You know, you just call someone a wanker. Like that would get you in trouble in England. Yeah. Know? In America, that's like a light insult that you could say, you know, you'd have to say with an English accent, but you could definitely like it's something that if a British kid went on Saved by the Bell, they could definitely call Screech a wanker if they wanted to. (laughs) It wouldn't be far off course. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, yeah. So button man top. Big Dave Bottom, Button Man, especially with Dread out of contention, Button Man very much in the catbird seat for for top thrills for the next couple of episodes, for Hell sure, yeah. I think. And with that said, I hope everybody enjoyed the show. As always, you can find Space Spinner 2000 on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Store, Spotify, or a podcast site, spacespinner2000.com. Contact us at spacespinner2000 at gmail.com. 2000 forums or Facebook or Twitter pages on Twitter. Red Space Spinner 2K, everything else, Space Spinner 2000. We should be there. And drop us a rating or review wherever you're listening. It helps us out a lot. This show's brought to you by Steve Greed, Robert Hardingham, and your friends, the 2080 Forums. If you'd like to join them and help support the show, we'd appreciate it. 
Check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Cradleline. That's our podcast network. And there you can support the show, get advanced episodes, and come back next time as we continue pretty much all of our current thrills, Yay. reaching climaxes in ABC Warriors and Robo Hunter. And we will also welcome a story from the Judge Dredd magazine, uh, futuristic communist action with red razors. Ooh, okay, cool. And until then, I'm Conrad Ace Fox, and we are Space Spinner 2000. Splendid. Splendid. Splendid.